your Bibles, did you open them to Deuteronomy chapter 32? And uh, I, I have a, a long wind-up this morning, so I promise we're going to eventually get there uh, to Deuteronomy 32, if you bear with me. Um, we are in a series entitled uh, From Roots to Fruits, and it's a series about uh, what's planted in one season bears fruit in the next season. That's a a biblical law of the harvest. We've talked about that frequently in our church. Uh, but so many times you and I are privileged to just experience the fruit. And we live in a, a season where we're blessed to have so many things that are accessible to us that oftentimes we don't really understand the work and the labor and the struggle of what went into it. And so really this series has really been about tracing kind of the, the, the roots of where we came from and where we're at. And so we started off by looking at uh, the Bible. Where did the Bible come from? Because I have a Bible. I absolutely love my Bible. Um, I got my Bible from... Um, uh, Ollie's. I was going to say, you guys should know where I got it by now. I say it every week. I got it from Ollie's. You guys know I paid $7 for it, <laughs> right? Uh, which is a, a great, um, I think it's a synthetic leather bound, but this is the exact kind I use. And I, when I saw it for $7 at Ollie's, I was like, man, I got to snag one of those. Um, if you come down to my office, you can see my previous Bibles that I have. Uh, they are falling apart. The covers aren't staying on them. I think they're duct taped. Uh, one of my Bibles, the kids' church, someone spilled super glue in it. So, <laughs> so I don't think I I don't think I preached out of the wisdom books for, for a while. You know, with that that Bible. But anyway, you know, how come you and I have the Bible so accessible to us and so cheap? You know. And it was because of a long process, and we went through a 3,000-year journey of how scriptures were able to be translated into our language and brought to us. And so we looked at that, and we understood that God is working through our root system. Uh, last week, we dove into how you and I uh, as, you know, came, to, came into faith communities, how we got the different churches how come we're just not all Jews, or how come we're not all Roman Catholics? How come there's such diversity in the kingdom of God? And we trace the, the, the church from the rise of the church during uh, Constantine, during the 4th century, all the way through some of the medieval periods and the Dark Ages, into the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed his 95 uh, thesis to the front door of the church in Wittenberg there. Um, and we looked at how that sparked a revolution, and, and we looked at all of that throughout Europe. Well, today I want to continue in that same line, in that same thought, and today I want to talk to you about the sermon that changed America. The sermon that changed America. I wish I could say this was one of my sermons, uh, but I'll say not yet, right? Not yet. The sermon that changed America, it's really, I want to talk to you about the Great Awakening. And some of you have heard about the Great Awakening. You've heard this. It was really a revival that was sparked in the American colonies uh, just about 300 years ago in the early 1700s. Um, it was the first revival on American soil. And it really helped set, uh, set the course of where America would, would, would head and how we would respond to God. The Great Awakening, this revival, predates the American Revolution by about 50 years. So before there was ever a, uh, a shot heard around the world by Lexington Minutemen, there was first another revolution that took place, a godly one. Instead of a, uh, a revolution that would be for independence, the Great Awakening would be a revolution for man's souls. And God would begin to do something. And it all started with a sermon. It all started with people hearing and responding to the word of God. But before we get there today, church, I have a huge introduction because I need to bring us up to speed. Is that okay? Uh, I, I've heard some reluctant yays. <laughs> 
they're like, ah, yeah, he's the pastor, so I got to go. Like, what's, um, what's uh, that, I don't know, one line that Adam Sandler says in something, I forget, but uh, he's like, I have the microphone, therefore you will listen to every word I have to say, <laughs> all right? Oftentimes I think that, the guy with the microphone has the power. So uh, today I want to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we left off at the Reformation. Um, and the church, uh, the church, Martin Luther had uh, raised his 95 thesis, nailed them to the walls of the church in Wittenberg. He did that on October 31st, 1517. 1517, that's an important date. I asked people in our Wednesday night Bible studies, what's that date? Because that date is really important. Because you have to understand what was happening in Europe in the 1500s. And during this time, the Church of England would be established uh, in the early 1500s. King Henry VIII was the king of England, and he had a problem. Uh, the problem was he was married to his wife Catherine, of which he didn't like very much. None of us have those issues. Uh, so he wanted a divorce. Wanted a divorce. However, the Roman Catholic church did not issue divorces in those days so uh, that was not a possibility now to make things just a little bit more difficult for king henry the eighth who wanted a divorce um, the pope was there in rome but he was kind of uh dislocated because there was some fighting that was going on well there is a governmental equivalency to the pope and this title is known as the Holy Roman Emperor. And at that time, during King Henry VIII's reign, the Holy Roman Emperor was King Charles V from Spain. All right? Now, I know this means absolutely nothing to us, but you have to realize that King Henry V of Spain, the Holy Roman Emperor, was the nephew of King Charles uh, I'm sorry, King Henry VIII's wife, Catherine. So he is definitely not going to support King Henry VIII. You guys see how, uh, you got, well, we're in Rogers. We know how these family relations work, right? Everybody's connected to everybody, and we, yeah. So, so this is how it's unfolding. So, so in this time, King Henry uh, VIII feels stuck in this marriage that he can't get out of because he cannot issue, uh, he cannot get a divorce there in the 1500s because of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, guess what's happening in the Roman Catholic Church? Martin Luther has started a revolution where people are, uh, have risen up against the Catholic Church. The Bible is now being translated into German uh, for the first time. In 1611, it's being translated into English for the first time. And so you have the word of God just being set forth into this time period. And people are being able to read this for the very first time in their own languages. And revival is breaking forth. So King Henry VIII, for whatever reason, probably very carnal, he sees this uprising that's happening in the Christian movement. He naturally wants to break from the Roman Catholic Church so that he can get a divorce. So he further issues um, an edict in 1534 that establishes a church in England. So, um, so he does that. He's breaking away. He convinces English Parliament that the King of England should not be subject to the Pope in Rome. It makes no sense. So they buy into that. They say, you're right. We should have our own church. They offer this edict. And as that edict progresses, the Church of England is established. And he is the, King Henry VIII is the head of the first English church. And as an act of this, guess what? His first act as the governing person is to get a divorce. <laughs> So he, so he gets a divorce, and he marries Anne of Bolin at that time, and, uh, and the, um, the English church is established. Now, as a perk to this, as a perk, 
all of the Roman Catholic churches that were in and throughout England are, are now transferred to English jurisdiction. And along with that, all of their wealth. So this is not just a, uh, a personal move. It was also a political move where they're now gaining vast resources for themselves. So it was a win-win for the English people. Except for it created a problem, church. And here's the problem. Um, let's, let's just set this in our own context. We're in America 2023. There are lots of churches everywhere, right? What if, go, dream with me for a second. What if the government ran every single church in our country? How well would things run, right? Right, yeah, you can just imagine, right? Uh, so let's backpedal to the 1500s. The, 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 the king and the government, the parliament of England, controlled all of the churches in England. And what they did was they started standardizing everything. So everyone had the same dates and you were all baptized at the same ages and it was the same liturgy from church to church to church and in fact it began this oppression um, I guess where everyone that was born into English uh, citizenship had to belong to the English church there were no options that was it and if you were to go outside of the English church you are to break away then you would be persecuted and you would be shunned, sometimes even put to death because you did not support and back the English government church. Uh, so you think that that would stop people, right? Being put to death, fear of being put to death, the law says I have to belong. You think that people would, okay, just cave in. However, you know what? God has a way of getting a hold of people's lives and, and putting truth in here. And when there's something in your spirit that God plants there, then you don't care what the law says. You obey God. And so what happens is there's people that are starting to break away from the Church of England, um, and they didn't want nothing to do with the Church of England. They wanted to separate themselves as far away from the Church of England as possible, and so they became known as separatists, okay? This is important because you will know them by a different name uh, of which we're going to celebrate a holiday here this week, but they're also called pilgrims. Separatists and pilgrims are synonymous there. So these separatists were breaking away from the church in England during this time, often facing persecution, uh, threat of life, all of these things, until finally they get to this point where we cannot hack uh, uh, England right now in its context. We cannot worship God freely the way that we want to worship, and we don't want to worship God in some dry, orthodox manner that the government says we have to. So we are going to break free, but we feel for... Our lives are threatened. We don't feel able to do that. And so what we're going to do is embark on a mission to the new world. And you guys know the story, uh, right? 100 of the separatists and pilgrims boarded the Mayflower in 1620. And they headed to the new world, 1620, where they would land at Plymouth Rock. And there they would establish the Mayflower Compact, which would be the first governmental document of the New World. Um, and they would establish the first American colony there on American soil. Now, one year after this, in 1621, after they would arrive in America, they would go through a very harsh winter. They would plant seeds in the spring and begin to work the, the fields. After, in the fall, when they would harvest... And they had all this food laying around, came the very first Thanksgiving, 1621. It consisted of 53 survivors. Okay, so they started out with over 100. 
So now we're down to 53. So uh, the conditions were a little bit rough, and we could get into all that. That's for another time. But 53 of them sat around, and they invited 90 Native Americans. So there was about 150 people there for the very first Thanksgiving there in 1621. And they celebrated Thanksgiving unto God, who was giving them uh, the crops of the field and just blessings upon blessings. That's why we still celebrate Thanksgiving today, uh, to this day, not today, but to this day. Um, and so on Thursday, we're going to eat uh, turkey, and we're going to eat stuffing, and we're going to eat, what, corn and green bean casserole. I'm sure they had that at the first one. <laughs> all right. Uh, all, of, all of that good stuff we're going to celebrate, and we are going to thank God for his blessings and provisions that he's given unto us. Uh, this is because the new world in the 1600s, it offered religious freedom to everyone who would come. You were free to worship however, whenever, at whatever time. If you wanted to sit there and be more stoic or you wanted to be exuberant, um, you could worship God all of those ways. Also, the new land, um, the colonies, it brought forth economic prosperity. You could work the fields, you could gain wealth, you could have prosperity, something that was unavailable to them in England. So by the, fast forward just a little bit, so it started out with 53 uh, separatists or pilgrims that came to the New World there in the first year in 1620. Fast forward 80 years, because of these variables, the New World would have about 260,000 settlers in it. So from 53 to 260,000, that's pretty expansive growth until you realize if you fast forward to 70 years more to the year 1770, right before the American Revolution, there was about 2 million people living here in the colonies. So massive explosion was taking place during this time here in the colonies. And it funneled its way into the American churches. The American churches preached a lot about prosperity, about God's favor, about wealth. Um, so much to the point where a, the, the message of the cross got bogged down. Uh, one historian said that decades after um, churches... I'm sorry, let me get this right. After a few decades, the original closeness to God that drove the early settlers to seek religious freedom was replaced by coldness and rituals of the church and the settlers established. And so really the churches had grown cold because there was so much vast wealth available to them in the land where they were living. And so when they started relying on themselves, they stopped relying on God. That makes a lot of sense. Now this was carried on. The impotence of the church was spurred on, not just by that dynamic in the colonies, but also what was happening in Europe during this time. Because after the Reformation, after people had felt this freedom from God and, and felt justified, there was this enlightenment period that was happening in Europe. This is called the long 18th century. The Enlightenment period happened between 1685 and 1815, and it was part of this movement where men and women now felt free, and they began to produce books and artwork and essays and inventions, scientific discoveries, uh, scientific laws and principles, uh, revolutions, the, the Enlightenment period brought forth philosophies that would um, be centered more on human ability rather than God's ability. And it produced numerous um, exponential, I guess, ways of thinking. Well, this traveled not just in Europe, but it traveled across the pond into Ameri the American colonies as well. And so, so in America, during this time in the 1700s, we had this this idea of the church and the church has lost its 
power. It's lost its message because the Americans are living in vast wealth. They were not relying on God. And in fact, they're being inundated with all of these new ideas from, from um, the Enlightenment period. And they're beginning to rely on their own strength, their own wisdom, their own talents, their own thoughts, rather than on God. And so thus the setting, uh, the stage is set for God to do something miraculous in the church. And he does. We call it the Great Awakening, a revival that went through the colonies. Now, before I get to the, my main man, let me just talk about a few key players. And the first guy I want to talk to you I, and want to introduce to you is a guy by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, um, and this is, this is funny, I don't, I don't know if he was cross-eyed or not, but that's the best picture I could get of George Whitfield. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, church, I look for other ones, but they're cross-eyed in all of them, so maybe he was cross-eyed, I don't know, um, and, and that's a very terrible selfie, though. I think he took that with a selfie stick back then, uh, but that is George Whitfield, now, despite his looks and how funny he looks now, this was common attire, common dress of the day. Um, in fact, as we get through all of our key players, they all kind of look like that. <laughs> they all have the white wig. They all have the, you know, the pilgrimage garb and all of that stuff. But George Whitfield was known as the Great Awakening's most rousing speaker. Um, it was said that he could mesmerize crowds just by the way he said the word Mesopotamia. 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 Right? Are you guys mesmerized? <laughs> Mess, 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 mess. We can remix it. Mesopotamia. Right? No, let's not do that. Pretend we didn't. Mesopotamia. Uh, the English actor David Garrick, he said this. He said, I would give a hundred guineas if I could just say the word oh, like Mr. Whitfield. Oh. Mesopotamia. Right? Oh. He was a great speaker, though, and people took note of that. Um, uh, in one sermon, uh, George Whitfield was claimed to, well, not claimed, but I guess he was documented as looking up to the heavens, and he would have a conversation with Father Abraham in the heavens, and he would say, Father Abraham, hey, do you have any Episcopalians up there? And a Father Abraham would say, no, there's no Episcopalians up here. It's like, well, do you have any separatists up there? No, we don't have any separatists. Well, do you have any independents up there? No, there's no independent people. Do you have any succeeders up there? No. He's like, well, why don't you have any of them? And then Father Abraham would look down and say, because we don't keep labels on people. All we have are Christians. That's all we have up here. So what we need to do is learn how to be Christians down here. Learn how to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And the crowd would roar when he would preach that. It is said that George Whitfield preached a sermon one time where the whole town repented and came to Jesus. So much so that the local bar had to shut down for a year and a half. Lord, let it happen in our time period, right? We could deal with a little bit of that. George Whitfield, powerful voice in the, uh, the Great Awakening. Not just him, but also, second person I'd like to introduce you to is John Wesley. John Wesley was known as a methodical man. He was a professor at um, Oxford University. And there he studied very mechanically-like. And so he would study according to the hours of the day. And from 12 noon to 1 o'clock every day he would study Calvin's idea of predestination. Then from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. he would study the doctrine of free grace. And pretty soon students were joining him in his studies. 
and it was very timely. You started here, you ended here, you moved on to the next, and so become very methodical. That's a key word, folks. He was known as being a methodical person, and so he started his own church with the people that formed known as Methodist. All right, you guys are tracking today, right? Known as Methodist or Holy Clubs. Um, early in his ministry, John Wesley would minister around all of the colonies. He would travel um, by his 87 years here on life. It said he would travel 200,000 miles by foot, by horseback, by carriage, which is probably a lot using those methods. Um, he would preach over 40,000 sermons in his time. Um, and he would focus most of his ministry on outreach to those in prison or those in jail or those um, who were unruly that had been sent here from other countries uh, as punishment. So, so uh, John Wesley was a very instrumental voice in the Great Awakening, but not to be undone by uh, his older brother, his younger brother, I think it's his younger brother, Charles Wesley. John and Charles are two brothers, Charles Wesley became a voice as well. Now, instead of preaching, Charles Wesley wrote a lot of music, and he wrote a lot of songs, and he wrote a lot of hymns. Um, it's reported that he wrote over 6,500 hymns in his time. That's a lot of music to write. Um, some of them are still sung in churches today, such as Love Divine, All Love Excelling. We're going to sing one of his hymns coming up probably next month, entitled Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You guys still know that one. One time there was a man that came into the church and gave testimony in front of Charles Wesley, and he said, man, I just want to praise God so much. If I had a thousand tongues, I would praise God. And of course, you guys know where that went, right? Charles Wesley then penned the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And so he made his impact musically in this time of the great awakening but the person that i really want to get to today is the man that started it all a man by the name of jonathan edwards isn't it funny how all these guys look the same right except for except for george whitfield he just he didn't have a good optometrist back then but they're all dressed the same. They all look the same. Well, history records that Jonathan Edwards was a tiny man by stature. He was small. He was frail. He was quite monotone in his delivery. Um, not exuberant, not loud, not boisterous, not all over the place like other pastors you might know. Right? He was very monotone, probably stared at his Bible, probably read like this without much deviation but he was known as one of the great intellectuals not just uh in biblical realms but in all realms he was very scholarly very wise and he pastored a church in northwest i'm sorry northampton massachusetts and he was pastoring there and that would became like the seedling place where this great revival would start breaking out and he would put together a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And there he preached it at his church in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts, and people would come to know Jesus, and it had good tracking and good following. And so in those days, uh, he was invited to speak at another church in Enfield, Connecticut, on July 8, 1741. Now, he was invited as a last-minute fill-in at this church. So what do pastors do when they are last-minute fill-ins and they don't have time to write a whole new sermon? They bring out one that they, they already have in their banks, and they bring out one that has already tracked well. So there on July 8, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, and this one church, this one sermon would change the trajectory of Christianity in America. The sermon had great impact on all the people who listened to it. People would begin groaning and, and yelling out and, 
and, and crying out in the middle of his sermon, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? Now, I find it slightly comical that George Whitfield, um, I'm sorry, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards did not stop his sermon when people were asking to be saved. In fact, he asked them to quiet down until he could finish his sermon. So, some of you like that? <laughs> I was like, let me finish, people, right? We'll have an altar call at the end. So he continued in this. He asked them to be quiet. He continued his sermon, which was 76,000 words. All right. Now, I did a word count on my Microsoft Word. and went, My normal sermon is right around 3,000 to 3,500 words. Somewhere in there, on paper. I'm sure I add about three times as much. <laughs> you know, spit, trying to spit out the right words. So let's say my average sermon might only be 10,000 words, right? Um, 78,000 words. It's said also that on average, the average person talks on uh, per day, uh, men talk about 22 to 24,000 words a day. Women talk about 48 to 50,000 words a day. That's a sermon for another day. Yeah, Jane says, because we have to repeat everything twice. <laughs> right? Um, I lost concentration, Jane, thanks. <laughs> 78,000 words in this sermon. So you could tell it was a very long sermon. But what happened at the end is people just began to, to cry out to God and to get saved. And so today, with the remainder of our time... I want to look at some of the highlights of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. All right? And uh, if you don't like the context of it, uh, don't throw stones at me. Jonathan Edwards preached it way before me. But I felt it was very important for us to know and to see this and to feel this. Because we don't hear these tones a lot in, with the messages that are preached in, in the 20, uh, what are we, in the 21st century? 20, yes, 21st century. So let me read it, the text. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. This was his text. It is mine to avenge. I will repay in due time. Their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. You guys already know where this sermon is heading, right? This verse threatens the vengeance of God upon the unbelieving Israelites. And Jonathan Edwards says, you've seen God move. You know God does miracles. You've seen his sovereign acts, yet you fall away. You fall into sin because you do not believe. Your unbelief irritated Moses in the desert. It irritates me. It irritates your pastor. But most importantly and ultimately, your unbelief irritates God Almighty. This verse emphatically states to all those who do not believe that you are on a slippery slope. Your foot will slip. It's like uh, sand running through an hourglass, counting down to your eternal punishment, to your demise. And so I want to focus on the seven words that Jonathan Edwards focused on. In due time, their foot will slip. In due time, their foot will slip. This phrase implies several things. It implies to unbelievers that they were always destined for destruction. As one that stands in slippery pathways is always exposed to fall, so is an unbeliever always exposed to destruction. The fact that God says, not might slide or can slide, but says will slide, tells of an unbeliever's impending doom. For there is no possible way for man to stand alone. 
We can't stand. It's like sending a novice skier to a double black diamond and asking them to go down the hill without falling. They will fall. And it's not by accident that you find yourselves on a double black diamond. You are on a slippery slope because God has placed you on a slippery slope. You are not there by accident. For Psalm 73, 18 says this. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down into destruction. This verse implies not only that the unbelievers are doomed to destruction, but their destruction will be unexpected. Just as a person who slips um, in slippery places does not know when they're going to slip. If you know where you're going to slip, you can prepare. But this is the worst part, is that you cannot foresee that moment when you will slip off into eternity. God doesn't say you could fall. He says you will fall, and you can fall at any moment. Just like a thief comes in the middle of the night to steal and kill and destroy, hell can happen for the unbeliever at any time. Any moment. This is still true for us today. You and I are not guaranteed one more second of breath. You and I could leave church today and be in a car accident. You and I could suffer a heart attack at any moment. Our mortality can fade away in the blink of an eye. This verse also implies that you are likely to fall in and of our own power, in and of our own strength. You do not need God to strike you down. You do not need others around you to strike you down. It is your own weight and your own actions and your own unbelief that cause you to stumble and cause you to fall. The reason why we fall is because we do not believe. We do not believe in the power of God. The only thing that we have is ourselves. When you do not believe in God, you do not believe in his power, you do not believe in his grace or his love or his mercy, you then are therefore subject to rely only on your strength, your knowledge, your wisdom, and your power and that is not strong enough to sustain you in that moment. Lastly, it implies the only reason you have not slipped and fallen already is that God's appointed time has not come. It's said that in due time or appointed time comes your footing will fail. You will be destined to fall into destruction by your own weight, there will be no one to save you then. You will come, I'm sorry, your falling and your failing will come upon you suddenly like one slipping on a dangerous slope. And so examining these four implications, there are only things that one must surmise and observe out of them. That there is nothing that keeps wicked man at any moment out of hell, except for the pleasure of God. God could cast anyone into hell at any moment. He is not weak. He is powerful to do that. For no one can save out of the Lord's hands. No one can resist him. What God says is absolute. What he does is absolute. Therefore, we must conclude that he is not able to cast wicked men into hell, but he also can do it most easily. Now, before we get too emotionally combative with God about casting men into hell, we must be reminded that this is what we deserve. This is what unbelievers deserve. Divine justice cannot stand in the way because... It makes no objection to 
God when God is using his power to destroy unbelieving men. It is just. It is a just sentence. Why is it a just sentence? Because unbelievers are already under condemnation that comes through the law of God. Unbelievers cannot stand against God's word. Unbelievers have already earned a death sentence because you do not believe in the eternal, immutable rule of righteousness that God has revealed to mankind. Therefore, you stand um, guilty as charged in judgment against you. You are already bound to hell. So an unbeliever is a dead man walking. For John 3.18 says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Praise God for that. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So because of their unbelief, they are now objects of God's wrath, his expressed torments of hell. And the only reason why they are not in hell already isn't the fact that God isn't angry with you because he is angry with you. He is angry with the unbeliever. And I quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says, as angry as he is with many of those miserable creatures that he is now tormenting in hell, and do there feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath, yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on the earth. Yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation, that it may be at ease and quiet than he is with many of those that are now in the flames of hell. So what he's saying is God is angry with the people. He's angry with the unbelievers. The reason why unbelievers are not in hell already isn't because God isn't angry, and it's not because God isn't mindful of their wickedness. He's not uh, naive to it. He knows all about our sin. He knows all about our unbelief. He knows the thoughts of our minds and the thoughts of our hearts. And he knows our evil desires that are contained within us. And so at that moment when we fail and we fall and we're able to do that at any time, the unbelieving soul is quickly snatched up by the devil. They are his possessions and his dominion. And we can do nothing against it. Luke eleven twenty one, talking about the strong man. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are secure. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted, and then he divides his plunder. And Jonathan Edwards begins telling them, this is what Satan does. We feel like we are strong. We feel that we are capable. We feel that we are protecting our own selves until a stronger man, the enemy, the devil, comes in, overpowers us, and divides our plunder. Foolish men think they do not need God in that moment. Foolish men think that religious practices will save them. Foolish men place their confidence in their own strength, in their own wisdom. They trust in nothing but a shadow which cannot save them. And so in conclusion, what are we to do in response? And I quote the conclusion of Jonathan Edwards' sermon. He says this, Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now wake up and escape the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. So therefore, let everyone fly out of Sodom. Let everyone haste and escape for your very lives. 
Look not behind you. Escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed. And I feel like that is the conclusion that we need to come to. It's a hard sermon to hear for those that are unbelievers. But for the believer, this is not us. For the believer, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we were worshiping today, the Lord brought this verse to me. I didn't even have time to put it in my notes. John eleven twenty five, at the grave of Lazarus, after a miracle, Lazarus raised to dead, Jesus says something more important than the raising of Lazarus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. There is life for the believer. Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as I close today? Because I want to give an opportunity and I feel like we need to. Maybe you're in the house today and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus. You have not accepted him into your life and you find seeds of doubt and, 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 and you've never gone that way. But today you just want to get right with God. You want to accept him. You want to become a believer. The Bible tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, it's a simple act of faith in believing. Jesus said, if we believe in him, we will not perish. We will have everlasting life. If you're here today and you say, I want to place my faith in Jesus, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you, alongside of you. If you're here today, you've never made that commitment, but maybe you want to today, would you just lift a hand so I can pray for you? Is there anyone in the house? Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? My faith has been wavering and I've been wondering. Help me to, help me to reclaim and restake my faith in Jesus Christ today. Maybe you want to renew your faith today. Renew your commitment to the Lord. Is there anyone in the house that wants to pray that way? Okay, I see, I see those hands there. Lord, today in this place, Lord, we're, we're, we're placing our faith in you. For we know that in and of ourselves we are powerless to defend against the laws of sin and death. But that is okay because we have a God who already came and gave his life for us. God in our place. And you died on a cross and you rose from the grave so that the curse of sin and death might be broken. Lord, that we are no longer under the law of, of righteousness or the law of sin or the law of death, but we are now under the law of grace and the law of mercy and the law of love. And so today when we explicitly raise our hands and we explicitly put our faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, we enter into a new covenant of which, God, you wash away all of our sins. God, you deliver us from the hand of the enemy. You deliver us from evil. You deliver us from hell. For we know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God, I thank you for a renewal in our hearts and in our minds. God, this Thanksgiving, as we sit around our tables and we thank you for the blessings, God, let us first thank you for salvation. Thank you for the sacrifice of which you've made. Thank you for the possibility that our sins can be forgiven. Thank you that we are rescued from the pit of hell and we get to spend eternity with you in heaven forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Church, Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon that day, July 8th. Um, I forgot my date. I know it was July 8th. People in droves came to know Jesus for the first time.
they would thrash down on the ground, reeling in the dirt because they had been exposed to their sin. And they stood wide open before God and said, this is who I am, God, forgive me. They cried out and they cried out. It's reported not just groups of people being saved, but towns being saved, whole communities being saved. The taverns and the bars had to shut down. Religious institutions and education rose up. The Great Awakening spawned universities like Dartmouth, Princeton, and Brown. They all had their genesis in revival. And people felt in tune with God like never before. And in that relationship with God, this is important, church, in that relationship with God, they found a new sense of freedom and independence, which would set forth events that would happen 50 years later, known as the American Revolution. Above this, it stimulated missionary work throughout the colonies and throughout the world, focused on, focused on those in prison, focused on slaves, focused on Native Americans, and the word of God spread throughout America. America's first great revival that changed the trajectory of where we were heading to where we are now. I praise God for it. Praise God. But I want to invite you back next week because this is the sermon that I've been itching to get to for three weeks. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, I was going to preach it today. Then I'm like, oh, I have an extra week. I can actually get this sermon in before we get to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Azusa Street a little over 100 years ago. That if this changed, if this changed the uh, Christianity in America... Pentecost changed Christianity worldwide. Come next week to hear the epic conclusion of how we got to where we're at. God bless you guys today. Happy Thanksgiving. What do you see when you look in the mirror? A loser, a failure. Does every scar determine who you are? Maybe don't look, just turn away If every day is like yesterday When's it gonna change? What do you hear when you're all alone? Stranded at sea on a stepping stone There's a cloud inside you, it's welling up Your eyes are holding back a flood It's safe to come undone Precious, you're not left out, you're wanted, you're not invisible with your shining soul. Love has spoken, you are chosen.